0: My guest on today's show is Larry Mestel, the founder and co-CEO of Primary Wave, one of the largest independent full-service entertainment companies. Primary Wave Publishing, the music division Larry oversees, acquires and develops the rights to iconic song titles and works with iconic artists. He has bought assets that include big-name hits from Kurt Cobain, Smokey Robinson, Steven Tyler, John Lennon, Def Leppard, Hall & Oates, and CeeLo Green. Prior to founding Primary Wave in 2006, Larry spent 20 years in the music industry, serving as COO and General Manager of Virgin Records, Executive Vice President and General Manager at Arista Records, and COO of Island Entertainment Group. Our conversation discusses the business of investing in music publishing rights, including Primary Wave's target market, due diligence practices, unique approach to growing revenue streams, and transactions. As you might imagine, the music business has plenty of great stories, and Larry shares a few of his gems. I hope you enjoy the show, and if you do, in honor of Father Daughter Week that you'll soon hear about, take a moment and sing Smokey Robinson's My Girl to the most important woman in your life. Thanks for listening, and please enjoy my conversation with Larry Mestel. Larry, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Most of the people I talk to have different roots into the investment business, and I know your path is quite a bit different. When did you first get interested in music?
1: Well, I started in the music business in 1989. I had actually, the way I got into the business was I was working for a company that was advising a company called Polygram Records on their acquisition of Island Records and a few other record labels back in 1988 and 89. And I had met Chris Blackwell back then and a gentleman that worked for him who has since passed away gentleman named Mel Klein. And, you know, they were absolutely incredible. I was just completely enthralled by how incredible they were, how amazing entrepreneurs, how they would built this creative company from, or how Chris had built this creative company from scratch. He was a legend and still is a legend in the business. And I'd gotten to know the company and one thing led to another. In a very short period of time, almost a blink of an eye, I was working in Island Records, and that's how I got started in the business, but I I was always interested in music. You know, it was music and sports. I would have loved to have been a sportscaster, but I think the, the road to success was a little bit longer than in music. I ran Island Records with Chris, and I did that for about 11 years. And then when Clive Davis got reassigned at Arista Records, and L.A. Reed came into Arista Records in 2000, I came in to run Arista with L.A., Was there for about four years and went to Virgin Records for a couple of years. And I decided in 2005, the recorded music business, not the music business, but the recorded music business was moving in the wrong direction. And I had always had a little music publishing company and marketing company contractually on the side. And I never really trusted the recorded music business, to be frank. And so In 2006, I started Primary Wave predominantly as a music publishing company.
0: I'd love to be clear about the changes in the recording music industry. So why don't you take me through from 89 to somewhere along the way, digitization and what's happened?
1: Well, as you know, there was an enormous boom in the recorded music business when digital technology came in with CDs, and that lasted for quite some time. And then Nabster really changed the business, initially in a very negative way. And uh, beginning probably around 2004 or so, you know, the business really started to lose momentum on the CD side. Piracy was rampant and CD sales were falling. And it wasn't until relatively recently that mechanical revenue, which is physical sales of physical CDs, downloads, coupling with digital streaming now really started to level off and and now is starting to ascend again.
0: So when you started Primary Wave, did you have in mind a business model that would inflect? And what was that model? Well,
1: having been involved in running major record labels, major labels tend to be much more interested in frontline product and in new music, in young Artists that they can develop and break and and the margin is and the upside is enormous if you break a new act and major labels typically Don't spend a lot of time or allocate a lot of resources to their icons and legends and so when I started primary wave in 2006 the vision was to provide a service on the music publishing side, which really didn't exist and to spend a lot more human focus, our human resources in focusing on iconic and legendary artists that weren't really getting all that much frontline attention at these major record labels. So when we started in 2006, as opposed to investing in accounting people and royalty people and copyright registration people, most of the partners that I brought on very early were marketing people promotion people, advertising people, video game people, people that could drive the top line, the people that could create new revenue streams. And we focused uh, in the early years a lot less, and still today, a lot less on the collections, administration, royalty function of copyrights, and much more on the creative aspect of, of opening new revenue sources and driving income. And that was our premise when we, in 2006 and still today that we want to be a company that delivers opportunity for artists not focus on what we think is a commodity which anybody can do uh, well and which a lot of companies do do very well which is collecting and administering we want to focus on marketing and promotion the other thing that makes us very unique is that we have a sister company which is a company called primary wave Entertainment. That, you know, we have a lot of synergy between with our music publishing side of our business and the entertainment side of our business. We are also very heavily involved in the TV development business, obviously both for purposes of making fantastic intellectual property, great television shows, but also as a way to enhance the value of our music because you know we can use our use our music in the television shows what are some of the
0: shows teams worked
1: on so we have two shows that are coming out very soon october 15th actually on at&t direct tv one is called hit the road with jason alexander another show they're actually debuting the same day back to back uh, on audience network the other one's called Milk." Um, And, you know, our TV TV guys have done a great job in producing those shows. Hit the Road is with Jason Alexander, you know, formerly of Seinfeld fame. So it's a a cross between George Costanza. Yeah, it's a cross between George Costanza meets the Partridge family.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And that's where the music angle comes in.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's about literally Jason Alexander is the head of this uh, family and they go on the road and perform, you know, perform music and it's it's hysterical, absolutely hysterical. We also manage a lot of talent as a management company and so it's a very it's a div- a very diverse a very diverse management company.
0: And did you start the entertainment business alongside the publishing business at the beginning?
1: That's a great question. So, very interesting. We had raised a lot of money in 2006 and 2007 from a hedge fund and a big bank. And it was a lot of money. We got very lucky. And we were able to buy a lot of these great assets early on. And then the financial crisis hit 2008, 2009. And the hedge fund that had been supplying us all of our equity capital ended up literally going out of business overnight. I mean, it was really one clean swoop they were amazing partners and they were just absolutely fantastic but you know they went from a 5 billion dollar hedge fund to not a lot overnight and so we we lost our partner our financing partner in terms of equity and then that put us in a situation where we could no longer draw down on our senior credit facility at this major bank and so you know being entrepreneurial back in 2009 you know we had this great company We had these amazing assets, they were cash flowing, but we couldn't buy 20, 30, $40 million assets anymore, right? So as a way to continue to grow our business, we spread out from music publishing and we started a management business. And CeeLo Green, one of the first management clients that we brought on and we managed just fantastic, amazing talent and great people, I mean, we manage you know, CeeLo Green, Melissa Etheridge, Fantasia, Eric Benet, Cypress Hill, lots of really, really fantastic talent, just really incredible talent. And we got into the film and TV side of the business. We put a, a brand team in place and a digital team in place around 2010 to expand the services that we were offering. And then we got into the television business and film business as part of what we do in 2014, 2014, 15.
0: So when you had this concept, what was the first deal or the first transaction?
1: Well, the first really big deal that we did was for the Kurt Cobain Music Publishing Catalog. We partnered with Courtney Love on that. We bought a 50% interest in the music publishing assets, kind of went to town on a we, what we believe was a very tasteful marketing experience.
0: So how does that work? So was that sitting in the hands of a publishing company, and then you approached them with Courtney to buy the rights?
1: The Kirk Cobain assets were being administered by a company called EMI, but you know they were providing typical administration services for Courtney. And I think Courtney, in addition to knowing that she had a very valuable asset, she wanted a partner that could think a bit out of the box and, and market very effectively and try to grow the revenue stream. So we really focused on that aspect of the business. So, so that really put us on the map acquiring Kurt Cobain's music. I mean, Kurt was obviously legendary and iconic. And our whole thing about our business is we're in the icon and legend business. We're in the icon, legend, and hit business. We're not in the real estate business. We're not interested in songs that aren't great songs. We're not interested in signing hundreds of artists or having hundreds of writers. The ones we sign, we really want to focus on. And unlike the Warner Chapels of the world or the Universals of the world, the Sonys of the world, the BMGs of the world that have millions and millions of copyrights, we only have thousands of copyrights, but all of our copyrights are exceptional. And frankly, it's just easier to market songs that you've heard of. That's why we focus on that as our business. And frankly, we think we have a fantastic staff of marketing people and people that uh, that drive opportunities, but it's very unusual in the music publishing space to have a large digital strategy team, which we do. It's very unusual to have a large brand team it's very unusual to run a publishing company like a record company and, and that's what we do so we've got a chief marketing officer i don't know of another music publisher that has a chief marketing officer and he has product managers and you know again uh, almost the entirety of our staff are people that are creative that are coming up with ideas and ways to market and i think that's what attracts you know talent to us i think that's what attracted smoky robinson to us lately I think that's what attracted Steve Cropper to us. You know, Steve Cropper wrote Midnight Hour, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. That's, you know, what attracted Tom Cochran, who wrote Life is a Highway. Those types of services that I think are very unique to Primary Wave is what attracts talent.
0: Once you've acquired these publishing rights, you so said you're going to be creative, you're going to market differently What are some examples of what you did differently from what had been done before
1: good question i'll give you some historical ones and then i'll give you something you know very recent one of the things that we did very early on with the kirk cobain catalog was we did a deal with converse sneaker company sneaker company yeah and most people would kind of associate that with a merchandise deal so we did a deal. Uh, one of our, our marketing guys came up with this idea to go to Converse because you know it was very true to who Kurt Cobain was. He wore Converse sneakers. And we did something very novel. We put Kurt's artwork and lyrics on the side of these niche Converse sneakers, and they became a very successful niche Converse sneaker. And it was great because Kurt's, you know, Courtney and Francis – you know, received a significant payment and we turned it into a music deal. You know, n- normally you wouldn't think of a sneaker as a music deal, but when you put lyrics on sneakers, it's a music deal. We also did another really amazing marketing idea that uh, one of our, our team members came up with, approached a uh, company called G-Tech, who do a lot of work in the, with uh, a lot of lotteries uh, in America and also the rest of the world. And we approached them on Aerosmith because, you know, we had bought Stephen Tyler's music a year or so before and we approached g tech with the idea of doing a lottery called dream on you know (laughs) what what would be what could be a better lottery game than a lottery game called dream on right so it was a fantastic arrangement g tech were great we we actually weren't thinking as big as we should have we approached g tech with just doing it in massachusetts And the company loved it so much, they rolled it out in multi-states. I think there were over 10 states that this rolled out in. And what was great is that not only did we license Dream On for the lottery game, but they also ran commercials, which meant that the song was synchronized. And obviously, when there were commercials and marketing opportunities, it just leads to more record sales, more downloads. So that that was also something... That was very creative. We don't know of another music lottery at that time. That was kind of the first. Does
0: that imply that there's been since?
1: Um, I think (laughs) there have been a couple since, but we were certainly the harbinger with Dream On. And then something, uh, you know, we, we obviously we do a lot of these things and this is what we do daily. But something very recent that I got a kick out of our chief marketing officer came up with the idea of a Smokey Robinson holiday. October 8th of this year is going to be father daughter day. And so our team approached American Greetings. And you know, if American Greetings or Hallmark says something's a holiday, it's a holiday, right? And because we bought Smokey Robinson's music catalog, and one of his big songs is My Girl, My Girl is going to be integral in this father daughter holiday that's coming up Sunday, October 8th, so Smokey's participated. Smokey couldn't be more proud that there's Father-Daughter Day holiday after his music, so that's another interesting thing that that we've come up with, but I I could talk about the marketing things we do all day long. They're fun, they're interesting, our artists love them, and that's really what makes us tick.
0: So if you start at the beginning of one of these as an investment, It sounds like all of the creative marketing is going to be some extra juice under what you're buying. How do you think about what you're buying as a financial transaction?
1: Different people in this space buy for different reasons. We buy because we believe that songs or an artist with their catalog are significantly under-commercialized, under-exploited, that there is significant opportunity in what we buy so we have to make sure that as a uh as a percentage of the overall mix of mechanical performance income and synchronization income that synchronization income isn't too high or the catalog hasn't been as i said before significantly exploited so we we look for things that we believe we can drive value on
0: and is there a sense of without the ability of Driving value as a marketplace, where do these things trade? as a multiple of cash flow or something like that?
1: There's a big range of what assets trade for as little as five times and as high as the upper teens.:
0: Is what drives the price sort of perception of the particular artist catalog?:
1: I think there are a few things that are driving the price. One is how iconic are the songs, how underexploited is the particular catalog or the particular artist. Also, the competition itself, how much money is chasing these assets. And frankly, we do not like to buy at auction. We almost never participated in auction. Every once in a while, if if the asset's unique, we will. But we are really focused on artists that want the service that we have because we like to partner with the artist. We like to help the artist unlike other music publishers, we're interested in helping the artist with their brand. We're interested in helping the artist sell more tickets if they're on the road. We're interested in helping the artist build their digital strategy, build their social media, build their footprint. It's a lot different than, than what a normal music publisher would focus on. So if it's just about price and just about cash, That's not really a relationship that we're interested in. We're interested, one where we're willing to pay a very fair price, even a high price, but that the artist distinguishes us from another.
0: So why don't we walk through the process and start with how you source these transactions?
1: Like any business, I think, this is a relationship business. So many of these deals come directly from the artists that we have relationships with or have had relationships with over the years or through attorneys or people in the business friends in the business my team and i have been in the business a really really long time used to be i was the you know the youngest person in the business now i feel like i'm (laughs) certainly one of the older people in the business so you know i guess the the positive side to being one of the older people in the business is I I have and my team have a lot of relationships and people bring us opportunities because we're helping add value to the artist's career, not, not just a source of money. You know, you can get money anywhere, but these days, you know, it really takes a village to promote music.
0: You know, this... It obviously sounds so sexy you're talking about. Nirvana, Smokey Robinson. Once you have the deal in place, there's got to be a due diligence process. Yeah. And what are the, you know, from someone from the outside, if they were coming in because they were all excited about doing a music deal, what are the kind of things where people would trip up?
1: There's a very extensive due diligence process when you're acquiring catalogs. You have to look at where the income is coming from. You have to analyze the income. Is it consistent income? Is it one-offs? Is it settlements? There are a lot of things in those royalty statements that you have to take a look at. And when you buy, you have to have an understanding of what the income stream is, what the expectation is to be able to value the income stream. So we spend a lot of time doing legal due diligence, copyright due diligence. One of the main issues you've got to worry about when you're buying copyrights is you have to look at How long do the copyrights last for before they go into public domain? When do the copyrights revert? If you're not buying from an artist and you're buying from a company, there are different rules. There's different rules to pre-1978 and post-1978 songs. There are a litany of due diligence items that you have to look out for. You know, are people claiming or are third parties claiming ownership, interests and in copyrights? There are a lot of issues that you've got to be aware of. And if you're just writing a check and you're not doing due diligence, you're, you know, you're putting itself at the extreme risk.
0: What was the deal that you most wanted that ended up going away?
1: That's another good question. This is an easy one. I wanted to buy for our company, the Jerry Lieber, Mike Stoller catalog. Lieber and Stoller were one of, if not the greatest songwriting duo, you know, in American history. They wrote Elvis Presley stuff. They wrote, they were just wrote so many hit songs. I developed a relationship with both Jerry and Mike Stoller. They were just fantastic people. And I, I know uh, that, you know, their attorney had introduced me and We had many, many meetings. I mean, we had at least four meetings. And I really, really wanted to buy that catalog just because the music was some of the greatest ever created. And we put an exceptionally high price in. And a major music publisher came in. This is back, I think, around 2008 or so. They came in with a a higher price than ours. And I still believe that Jerry and Mike wanted to sell to us, even though it was a lower price, but they were doing a lot of estate planning at the time for their family. And I came back with a, and we rarely, this is why we rarely participate in auctions. And we came back and sweetened our offer, which was not, still up to the same level of pricing that this other this major music publisher was at and then the major music publisher came back in at an even higher price and i said basically they had to make a decision on whether or not they wanted to be in business with us or they were going to take the higher price and in fact i told them you know listen you guys are crazy you, you take the higher price because it was significantly higher and they struggled with a decision because I think they understood that we would have been great custodians of the music, but ultimately they chose the other company at a significantly higher price than, than where we were. And that was was a shame because, you know, when you're in, in the music business, you want to work with great artists, great writers, and great songs. And this was just a phenomenal, I mean, Lieber and Stoller were, you know, were amazing.
0: So do you think about your investing as a portfolio?
1: You have to. I mean, absolutely, especially... With the business that we have today, we don't like to have too much concentration in any one artist, any one genre of music. So, yeah, we look at it absolutely as a portfolio, but a portfolio where these are among the greatest songs of all time. I mean, when you talk about Smokey Robinson's, you know, My Girl and Tears of a Clown and all these great. Smokey Robinson songs, and then you couple it with Green Onions and Knock on Wood and Sitting on the Dock of the Bay and Midnight Hour and the song Crazy by CeeLo Green and Life is a Highway. And then you keep going. I mean, we want to develop a portfolio of songs that are just incredible songs.
0: So will you specifically go out and say, okay, in that mix, we don't have country. So we want to find a great, some iconic music in country or hip hop. Well, we
1: don't look at it like that. We don't look at it and say, "Oh, we're light in country music or light in hip hop or light in R&B." We want to be diverse in terms of artists. And when I say genre diverse, I'm talking about we don't only want to have rock and roll music. We don't only want to have R&B music. We don't only want to have dance music. We don't want to be genre specific, but when we look at a deal, we don't necessarily look at the genre. We look at how iconic the artist is um, and how iconic the songs are. So it could be a country act where the artist is iconic. In our case, we like older music. We don't like to buy music that's younger than, let's call it, you know, seven to 10 years, because we want historical, predictable income streams. And the newer the music, the less predictable more likely the revenue is declining. So, you know, we like music that's been out there a while.
0: What are the dynamics of working with artists? Right? They're creative types, probably very different from business people. How do you navigate the differences in personalities in getting, getting the work done?
1: That's a great question. Everybody learns differently. Everybody understands differently. People are people. Artists just are more creative. And so the way we work with our artists is we try to deliver. Artists, rightfully so, are skeptical because by nature, they're not necessarily as business minded as a, as a businessman is, right? So, you know, with, with anybody, you have to gain their trust and the way you gain their trust, is to deliver opportunities for them. And that's what we try to do with our artists. We try to deliver as many opportunities as we can, make sure that we're consistently in touch, and make sure that, that we're working as hard as we possibly can. And uh, I think our, our artists appreciate the fact that we take a very personal approach with them and, and, and protect
0: them. So tell me a story about... The personal approach, something that you remember that you know would you wouldn't have expected ahead of time, but but really resonated.
1: I'm not sure I want to do that. All right. That's fair. Yeah, only because only because I think artists value their privacy. Yeah, like everybody, I guess. But artists artists really do value their privacy, and without getting approval from from an artist, that I might tell a story, but I, I don't think it's appropriate.
0: Yeah. Um, when you. Enter into one of these investments. Do you have an exit in mind?
1: Nothing's forever in business. Uh, so, um, um, you know, you're always thinking about the future, always thinking about building. Um, but our focus right now is really on building value, and um, and uh, you know, I, I always tell our staff, our partners, and our, our team that. Um, as long as they continue to focus on developing creative ideas, um, marketing in ways that nobody's marketed before, and finding new revenue streams, the economic opportunity will always be there.
0: And a lot of investing world has gotten increasingly data driven in the last, especially in the last couple of years, proliferation of big data. I'm curious if there's anything you guys have done differently as it relates to the data available with these artists and as you're looking at acquiring these rights? Yeah, well,
1: what's great about the music business in the last decade or so is that we can see, you know, real-time sales. So there's something called SoundScan, so we know how many albums actually sell as opposed to used to be back in... In the earlier years uh, of the business, people would report. Billboard. Yeah, they wouldn't what always would it report makes. accurately. <laughs> we know, reasonably speaking, how many albums sell, how many streams are out there. There's a lot of radio data, so we can kind of track how our songs are playing on the radio, how many spins. There's a lot more in terms of data points than there ever used to be. I think uh, music was kind of like... The shadowy back office, you know, or stepchild of the entertainment business, there's a lot more data now on music.
0: And has the competition changed that much of late?
1: Well, when we started in 2006, there really wasn't as much independent competition as there is now over the last few years. A, a lot of independent, financially backed competitors uh, have come into the marketplace. But we really do think that the makeup of our company and the service that we provide is very unique because while we are financially very well backed um, and have enormous resources, we offer this service to artists that we're unaware of anybody else offering. So while there are competitors in the so-called publishing space, we think we're very unique as a publisher.
0: I'm curious what you think your business might look like 10 or 15 years from now, in that the iconic songs we've been talking about in artists are from 15, 20 years ago. And today you have sort of a Taylor Swift who's figured out how to monetize every single angle. And if people follow her lead, do the iconic songs of today for tomorrow sort of get increasingly owned by the artists themselves?
1: Well, the smart artists of today are putting themselves in a position to own their own music. their own their own copyrights. I think that it depends on the resources that the artists themselves have. Most artists aren't wealthy. To the extent that artists need money, they're going to partner with you know, a music company, whether it's a recorded music company or a music publishing company, and they're going to take an advance and there's going to be an interest that those companies are going to take in the music of, of that artist. I think that Attorneys today, business managers today, in general, artists today are generally smarter about the business that they're doing than they were years ago. But again, that's why it's all about how much value can you add to an artist. If if it's only a check and the artist doesn't need a check, then
0: it's going to be very hard for you to be associated with the artist unless uh, you have a special service. Larry, I'm going to turn to a couple of closing questions. You mentioned sports earlier. What... Was your favorite sports moment, either as a fan or a participant? That is
1: very easy. I actually have three. Okay, so I've three. <laughs> the first was the very first Super Bowl that the New York Giants won. That was a thrill. I got to watch it with my dad, and we were longtime suffering Giant fans. And the second was the David Tyree catch. If you're a New York Giant fan, it was just the catch. Where Eli Manning scrambled through 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 the we, we if you were a Giant fan you knew the Giants were gonna were going beat the Patriots after that catch it they yep, we, we they were going into the end zone it was just not uh, the they wouldn't be denied that was my second favorite moment and my my third favorite moment I remember very interestingly when the Rangers won the first Stanley Cup since 1940 in 94 I had season tickets that year to the ranger games and all my friends would come with me you know we'd go or i'd give the tickets away they'd come with me throughout the whole season and then my wife would never come to to a regular season game and then all of a sudden she came to the first playoff game and then the second playoff game and then, <laughs> then i said to her and my friends want to come to the game she says yeah but it's the playoffs <laughs> and, and i think she went to almost every playoff game with me and then game seven right when the, the clock was counting down, right? You know, it was under a minute to play. The garden was deafening. I mean, deafening. And, the, you know, the place was going crazy. And my wife looked at me and she said, come on, let's go. I said, <laughs> I said, go where? I said what are you talking about? There's less than a minute to go. We're going to win the Stanley Cup. She goes, "Yeah, let's get out of here with the crowd." I said, "Are you crazy? I've been waiting I've been waiting decades for this. We're going to we're gonna, not only going to watch, I want to watch the presentation of the trophy." Oh, so that's I, awesome. I'll never forget, you know, th- those were the
0: th- those were the three big, you know, sports <laughs> moments for me. What teaching from your parents most stayed with you?
1: I certainly did not grow up poor. I didn't grow up wealthy, but I grew up in a middle-class family, born in Brooklyn. My parents moved us from Brooklyn to New Jersey when I was six. And while I never wanted for anything, we never really had any excess. I mean, my parents were very grounded, very normal, grounded, kind, nice people. And I mean, I couldn't imagine anybody being more trustworthy than my dad. And at our company, at this company, there is one thing that matters most. And that is loyalty, loyalty and trust, loyalty over everything, anything and everything. And I think I learned that from my
0: parents. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in your life?
1: There are so many. I would tell you that my dad was an entrepreneur he worked with my uncle and my cousin and my grandfather. And from the day I graduated college, I worked as an employee and I worked as an employee up until 2006 when I started Primary Wave. And if only I would have had the self-confidence back when I graduated school, or maybe not graduated school, maybe a couple years after graduating school, to go out on my own and be an entrepreneur in the music business. You know, that's one thing that I, I probably look back on and say, I only wish that I would have been an entrepreneur even earlier.
0: All right, Larry, last one. It is your waning days. You are 100 years old. Sitting in a music studio, listening to your favorite tunes, what advice would you give yourself today?
1: Well, first of all, when I'm 100 years old, I will not be in a studio. (laughs) 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 But I, I would buy that 100 years old right now if I could. The advice that I would give myself would be for us and we won't to not, not stray from the vision of buying the best music possible. Iconic, legendary music, hits, just the greatest music of all time. And it's something that we started out doing in 2006, and the most success we have had with the music we've bought is from the music that has been the very best and so if i was a hundred years old looking back i don't want to say and I, I i will keep reminding myself i don't want to say yeah i shouldn't have i shouldn't have bought that okay because it wasn't the best or it wasn't among the best and that, that's really what what i want to do
0: Great. larry thank you so much for taking oh, the time thank really you. enjoyed it Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you've liked what you've heard, please write a review on iTunes or Google Play to help others find out about the show. Have a good one and see you next time.